It's now only two days until Passover. And according to John, Jesus has gone to Bethany, which is just outside of Jerusalem. Matthew and Mark's version of the story says he's at the home of Simon, a man he apparently cured of leprosy. But I'm going with John's version because it's got some important points in it. In John's version, we find ourselves in the home of Jesus' dear friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, whom he recently raised from the dead. The siblings are giving a dinner in Jesus' honor in Bethany. Now, I don't think the Sanhedrin, the religious governing body that wants to kill Jesus, can actually send soldiers inside private homes to arrest him. I don't know that for sure, but that's just kind of what I'm guessing here. So he's apparently as safe as he can be at the moment. The Sanhedrin needs to catch Jesus somewhere outside, but away from crowds. Martha, as usual, is serving, while Lazarus is, of course, reclining at the table with all the other men. But Mary, our empath, Mary is already grieving Jesus. As close friends, the siblings most certainly know that Jesus has said he will be tortured and will die soon. The other disciples may not be taking Jesus literally, but Mary does. She has listened and her heart has been pierced. Mary, weeping, takes an extremely expensive jar of scented oil. And as Jesus reclines at the table, she begins to pour it over his feet, wiping his feet with her hair. Her tears mingle with the oil and the scent just permeates the room. The tenderness and her grief are palpable. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, scorns her. He remarks, this ointment is worth a year's wages. Why wasn't it sold and give, and the money given to the poor? It is here that John tells us that even if this had been done, Judas would not have given the money to the poor. Because as the group's treasurer, he'd been embezzling funds. I wonder if Judas is in terrible debt somehow. So much of what he does in the story seems to be motivated by a desperation for money. Well, Jesus defends Mary, saying, leave her alone. Let her keep this ointment for the day of my burial. The poor will always be with you, but you will not always have me. Now, these words are sometimes taken out of context and twisted around to make it sound like Jesus thinks we should spend our money and not worry about the poor because no matter what we do, we won't be able to erase poverty. But that's not what he's saying at all, is it? In fact, it seems to me that we could fairly easily eradicate poverty worldwide, and I think we should be doing that. The fact that, quote, there are poor with us always is our shortcoming, not Jesus's. I think Jesus is saying that, yet again, Mary is in tune with what is going on spiritually. And Jesus' impending death is momentous. Jesus' body will indeed need to be prepared for burial 
with this very ointment. Then Jesus says, I tell you for sure, wherever the good news is preached in this world, the story of what she has done will be retold in her honor. And that's what we're doing today, honoring the woman who listened and believed and acted. The woman who ignored ridicule and persisted. The woman who faithfully followed the Spirit of God. Meanwhile, crowds of people have found out that Jesus is in Bethany, and they all flock to see Jesus. But also, they all flock to see Lazarus, because who wouldn't want to see a man who's just been raised from the dead? So now the chief priests make plans to kill Lazarus too, because the people are seeing that Lazarus is indeed alive and they are believing in Jesus. Judas Iscariot is, I suspect, feeling humiliated and angry after being called out by Jesus in front of everybody. And for him, this is the last straw. Judas goes to the chief priests and asks them what they will pay him if he can find a way to hand Jesus over to them. Judas will know where Jesus is staying. He will know when Jesus is camping outside and is not in a private home and not near any crowds, but is still near enough to Jerusalem that the chief priests can send out their guards to arrest him. Well, the chief priests jump at the chance, and they pay Judas a bounty of 30 pieces of silver. That's about four months' wages. From that time on, Judas is alert for the right time to hand Jesus over. A word here about calendars and timelines. Everyone has a different way of reconciling the various accounts in the Gospels. Some people think the gospel writers' accounts conflict, while others think they can be made to fit together. I'm going to give you my educated guess as to how the chronology goes, but in the end, it doesn't really matter. (laughs) If you've been in my classes long at all, you know that the detail is not where the important themes and messages dwell. So please, please, Do not get all hung up in the minutiae. Nevertheless, you also know that I am careful with my research, so I am going to give you a suggested chronology of these last days of Jesus' life. The first thing you need to know is that we Westerners are accustomed to counting days as beginning and ending at midnight, right? But from the beginning of the Hebrew Bible, This is not how days are counted. In the Bible, days begin at sundown and end at sundown. Even in the creation story back in Genesis 1, you can see that the days are counted by saying there was an evening and there was morning, the first day, and so on. So instead of just looking at the Western names of days, we have to look at the dates as well so we can keep it all straight. Since we will be using the Jewish calendar, I will assume just for ease that sundown is around 7 p.m. at this time of year. So the day we Westerners might call Tuesday 
would begin around 7 p.m. on Monday and end around 7 p.m. on Tuesday for the Jews. See how that works? My best guess, based on the days of the week and where the Sabbaths fall in the story, is that all of the events of this last week of Jesus' life take place during the month of Nisan in the year 3790 using the Hebrew calendar. I use a very helpful conversion tool at rosettacalendar.com to help convert dates between the Julian calendar that we Westerners are used to and the Hebrew calendar, um, which you can see here. As you can see, um, the Julian year 30 is the Hebrew year 3790. I'll give you the link in the study guide so you can play around with this too. The more information links on this website are a goldmine of information as well. If you want to go down this particular rabbit hole, it's kind of fun to poke around and read the fine print. So someone in class is bound to do the math and notice that if Jesus died in 30 common era, which is 3790 on the Hebrew calendar, then year zero on the Hebrew calendar would be 3760 BCE, right? And that bright person might ask, what in the world happened in 3760 BCE that would cause the Hebrew calendar to use that as year zero? Great question. <laughs> I'm glad you asked. Folks who were here with us in the series on the Apocrypha will know that the Hebrews started their calendars over every time there was a really major person or event. And you might remember that the Hebrew calendar was last restarted in 142 BCE, when the Jews won their national independence from the Syrians under the leadership of Simon, one of the Maccabees. So, if the calendar should be at, you know, something like what's 142 plus 30, 170 BCE, how did we suddenly get another Hebrew calendar that starts in 3760 BCE rather than 142 BCE? How did that happen? Aha, uh -huh, another great question. Y'all are on a roll. As it turns out, this new method of counting the Hebrew calendar didn't get invented until about a hundred years after Christ's death. When Rabbi Yossi ben Kalafta wrote a chronology based on the Hebrew Bible that calculated the date Adam was cast out of the Garden of Eden, and the date he calculated was 3760 BCE. That was year one, as far as the rabbi was concerned. And since he was a very important rabbi, this method of dating has stuck. He made a slight miscounting at one point um, during the exile. So the number is actually closer to 4000 BCE if you fix that. And that is why many Christians who believe the Bible to be a literal historical authority will insist that the world is only 4,000 years old. This position is called young earth creationism. 
Now, archaeologically, um, 4000 BCE would be right around the end of the Stone Age and the beginning of the Bronze Age. So to believe that this is actually year zero, you have to like studiously ignore a vast amount of scientific evidence. But people get to believe whatever they want to believe on this, you know. Anyway, using Yossi's calendar, which is still used by some Jews, the last year of Jesus' life would be in 3790, or 30 Common Era. Scholars come up with all kinds of dates for Jesus' last year, but they are usually right around this time. The Gospel writers tell us the dinner at Bethany in honor of Jesus took place two days before Passover. Under Mosaic Law, Passover begins at sunset at the beginning of the 15th day of Nisan. So the Bethany dinner would have had to have taken place on Monday evening, two days before, at the beginning of the 13th of Nisan. This is also presumably when Judas collects his 30 pieces of silver. Things will move quickly from here on out. The story of this week is, of course, in all four Gospels. As usual, each writer focuses on particular details, so I'm giving you a mashup like I tend to do. Two days have passed since the dinner at Bethany. It's now Wednesday morning, the day the lambs are slaughtered for the Passover meal. I'm pretty sure that Jesus and the disciples are now back on the Mount of Olives, camping out, so they have easy access to the temple each day during the festival. But wherever they are, they are definitely in hiding. The disciples ask Jesus where they should make preparations for the Passover meal. They can't exactly do it out here on the mountainside. Besides, this meal will be a terribly dangerous moment for all of them. They need to find a private home that they can get in and out of quickly. Once in the home, they should be relatively safe. Jesus tells them, go into the city and find this particular man. Now, the man is not named in the passage, but the Greek used means it's a certain person. And Jesus says, you'll know him because he'll be carrying a water jar. Follow him. Now, this would be very unusual as it is the women's job to carry water certainly not the job of the master of the house. It is such an inconsistency that we might wonder whether this person was originally a woman and whether her gender was altered as the story was passed down. There are other instances where we can actually see such a thing being done to other passages in the manuscripts we have. The revised words with the new male gender are then copied over um, with the male gender in place, of course. Or perhaps this is a prearranged undercover signal. But if so, how would the man know to be carrying a water jug at that moment? Is he supposed to be walking around Jerusalem all day on this particular day carrying a water jug? And if it was originally a woman, there would be a zillion women carrying water jugs. So how would the disciples find the right one? Maybe it's a Holy Spirit thing. Perhaps there is some unusual reason this man is carrying a water jug at that particular time and Jesus has seen it in the Spirit. Or perhaps there is some 
other identifier that has been lost in the retelling of the story. Nevertheless, the disciples now know what to look for. Jesus says, tell the man that my time is near and that we are coming to his house to have Passover with him. And the man will show you a large guest room upstairs that has been made ready for us. So this is interesting. I I wonder if this man's family is present at the Passover meal as well. If it's a private home, you would think so. But, you know, if he's an innkeeper, then perhaps not. Maybe that's why he has a large guest room upstairs. Or maybe it's just an empty house and um, he's he's just got this room that they can use in an empty house. I'm, I'm almost leaning towards that because of something that happens later in the in the story. Anyway, when time for the Passover meal arrives, Jesus and the disciples gather in the upper room. The disciples, believe it or not, start arguing over who will be the greatest in the kingdom. They know things are coming to a head, but they are obviously still expecting Jesus to miraculously become king and rule over everyone, and they get to be, you know, big shots. Well, Jesus hears them and says, the kings of the Gentiles love to lord it over everyone. Don't be like that. The greatest among you should act like the trainee, the newbie, the intern. You think the one at the table is the greatest and that the servants are the least. But I am here as your servant. You have stood by me in my trials and I bequeath my kingdom to you as my father willed it to me. You will eat and drink with me in my table and in my kingdom and will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, now that's more like it. This is what the disciples want to hear. Never mind all that servant stuff. As you know, it would be customary for the servants of the house to wash the feet of guests before they recline at table, especially at a special event like this one. But but in this house... There are apparently no servants to do it. That's why I kind of think this might be an empty home. Perhaps this is because the disciples and Jesus are in hiding and the owner is not letting servants go up there. I don't know. Um, Nevertheless, no matter what, either these men, the disciples are going to have to wash their own feet or someone has to play the part of the servant. And uh, that doesn't exactly fit with the conversation they've been having with each other about who's going to be the biggest big shot. So I suspect this is a very awkward moment, especially after all that throne talk. Imagine their shock when Jesus himself takes off his cloak, puts on the towel of a servant and prepares a bowl and begins washing their feet you probably could have heard a pin drop in the room. When Jesus gets to Peter, Peter protests saying, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus says, you may not understand this now, Peter, but you will later. And Peter says, no, absolutely not. You must never wash my feet. And Peter, and Jesus says, Peter, if I do not wash you, 
you have no place, no share, no portion with me. And Peter, finally realizing that this is a symbolic act, says, oh, then don't just wash my feet, wash my head and my hands, everything. (laughs) You got to love Peter. But Jesus says, Peter, if someone has bathed, they only need to wash their feet because they are completely clean. You disciples are clean, though not all of you. And as the disciples chew on that for a bit, Jesus finishes washing their feet, puts his outer cloak back on, and returns to his place at the table. I wonder who washed Jesus' feet. Jesus says, Do you understand what I just did for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, because that is what I am. So if I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, then you do likewise and wash each other's feet. I tell you for sure, no servant is greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Don't just like know these things in your mind. Do them and be blessed. Jesus then welcomes them all to the table saying, I have really been looking forward to sharing this Passover meal with you before I suffer. I will not eat of it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. That word fulfilled means accomplished, completed, you know, perfected, made whole, that whole, that kind of concept. I think that goes, you know, right over the disciples head. Because at this point, everyone starts eating. If you are familiar with the modern Jewish Seder meal, you need to set that image aside for now. That version of the Passover meal was not established until well after Christ's death. It was established by Jewish rabbis and evolved over a period of hundreds of years, which is why Jews often see it as cultural appropriation when Christians gather for a so-called Seder meal. This modern version of the meal is not described in the Hebrew Bible, which Judaism and Christianity share. It is something entirely Jewish, and it's more modern Jewish. Jesus and the disciples are sharing the much simpler meal decreed by Moses in Exodus 12, 22. Its two primary elements are intended to keep the people from ever forgetting how God miraculously rescued them from slavery. The meal is centered around the unleavened bread, which is more like a cracker. It's to be a reminder that on the night God rescued them, They had no time to let their bread rise, for they had to be ready to escape slavery in a hurry. This idea is such a big deal that every year at this time, the entire nation eats unleavened bread for a whole week. There is no yeast anywhere in the house for a week. It is important never to lose hope. To know that God can rescue us in an instant and we need to be ready to go. This is the point of doing eating the unleavened bread. 
the other main part of the meal is, of course, the lamb that has been slaughtered and roasted earlier in the day. It's a reminder of the roasted lamb eaten on the night of their rescue in Egypt. The blood is a reminder that on that fateful night long ago, God passed over the homes that had the blood of this lamb splashed on their doorposts. No death entered those homes that night. While they are remembering how God showed up to rescue them from slavery and remembering that they need to be ready to travel, ready to go with God, Jesus picks up some of that unleavened bread and blesses it. Then he breaks it into pieces to pass around the table and says, take this and eat it. It is my body. I imagine there are more than a few glances between the disciples at this uh, at this point. What could Jesus possibly mean? In Luke's version, Jesus adds, do this to remember me. Then, as they are remembering the blood of the lamb that was painted on the doorposts and remembering how God protected them from death uh, back in, in Egypt, Jesus picks up a cup of wine and gives thanks for it and says, drink out of it, all of you, for this is my blood, the covenant, the promise for the many bestowed, poured out liberally. Luke adds that it is being poured out for the release from sins. This language in the Greek carries the thought of being freely given, bestowed as a gift. I think Jesus is speaking to his commitment to his mission to the very end, his mission to free us and heal us, giving all of us, the many, the disciples, the people, and even the Romans and the religious elite, the opportunity to see and hear God's promise of love. Jesus is faithful to show us even to his very last drop of blood. Jesus is about to show us that not even death can separate us from God's covenant of love. Not even death we ourselves perpetrate. Jesus continues saying, there is a passage in scripture that is being fulfilled here. And he quotes Psalm 41.9, which says, my trusted friend who shared my bread has lifted up his heel against me. As always, when Jesus quotes scripture, we want to go back and look at the context. So let's look at this short psalm. It's one of King David's. I've paraphrased and somewhat condensed it here. Blessed are those who care for the needy. Yahweh will deliver, protect, and sustain such a one. So notice that having consideration for those in need is the basis for this whole psalm that Jesus is quoting. My enemies say that when I die, my name will perish. Even my trusted friend who shared bread with me lifts up his heel against me. Remember how the last straw for Judas was when Mary anointed Jesus with that expensive oil rather than selling it and using it for the poor? And remember how Judas did not really care for the poor, but only for the money? Is Jesus calling these words to mind for Judas' benefit here and letting him know he realizes what Judas's motivation is? Have mercy on me, the psalm, psalmist says, David says, and raise me up. I know you are pleased with me. My enemy does not triumph over me. In my 
completeness, that word means my integrity, my blamelessness. You support me and set me before your face forever. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, forever and ever. Amen. Wow. Look at this setting for Jesus' words about Judas here at the Last Supper. What Jesus says here carries a lot more meaning to the disciples than just this little bit about dipping bread. That last sentence is saying that no matter how broken his body may be, he is still complete and perfect and wholly faithful, and his face is before God always. Jesus continues saying, I'm telling you this beforehand so that when it does happen, you'll remember this and believe that I am. I am the one. I tell you for sure, whoever receives anyone I send receives me and also receives the one who sent me. Then Jesus' spirit is stirred and he starts testifying, saying, I tell you for sure, one of you will betray me. The disciples look at each other. Who could it be? What does Jesus mean by this? Peter, who is a couple of seats away from Jesus, kind of nudges the disciple who is reclining next to Jesus. John says this disciple is the disciple Jesus loved. (laughs) And since John's doing the writing, we pretty much assume John is talking about himself. So Peter says, John, ask him which one of us he's talking about. So John leans over to Jesus and says, Lord, who is it? And Jesus says, it's the one I give this bread to after I've dipped it in the dish. And Jesus dips the bread in the dish and gives it to Judas Iscariot, telling him out loud, what you do, do quickly. The other disciples who who haven't heard any of this and who know Judas takes care of the money just figure Judas has gone to buy something or maybe give some money to the beggars. John is the only one who knows that Jesus has just identified his betrayer. Judas leaves immediately, fading off into the night. The versions that Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell are somewhat different than John's. In their versions, Jesus adds it would be better for the one who betrays him to have never been born. As we know, Matthew and Luke copy from Mark, so it's really sort of Mark's version versus John's version here. And John's version makes more sense to me. It has a whole lot more detail, like massive amounts more of the dialogue during the Last Supper. And John's version seems more like how Jesus would have handled this. I think Jesus would simply have told Judas to go do what he has chosen to do without shaming him in front of the rest of the disciples. After Judas leaves, Jesus says, now the son of man has been glorified and God has been glorified in him and God will glorify him in himself very soon. What does this even mean? This is not language that makes a lot of sense to us nowadays. According to Thayer's Greek lexicon, the word glorified here means to make famous by causing the dignity and worth of someone to be recognized and acknowledged. So let's follow this sequence. First, the dignity and worth of Jesus will be recognized and acknowledged, which will cause the dignity and worth of God to also be 
recognized and acknowledged. And then God will in himself recognize and acknowledge Jesus' dignity and worth. Very soon, Jesus will take his place in God. At least that's how I'm reading this. It's a huge statement worth pondering, and we will look at it closer actually next week when it comes up again a little later during this same dinner. Meanwhile, Jesus has a lot to say at the Last Supper, but for now, let's go back and ponder what he just said about the Passover. All right. I can't wait to hear what y'all came up with this time. I think that I think that when we think about the Exodus story and God rescuing the Hebrews from slavery, we think of it as a one and done sort of thing, right? That that you know, they had the 10 plagues and then the very last plague after after Pharaoh just wouldn't and wouldn't and wouldn't and let them go and kept reneging and then chasing after them and all the things when God said, okay, we're going to be done with this <laughs> and took yeah. them out on Passover. It was such a huge event and such a big deal. And we... I don't know that until Jesus says what he said, that we even think of Passover as not having been finished back then. So when Jesus says it's going to get finished after I'm gone, I'm not, I'm not going to, and I'm not going to celebrate Passover again till it is finished. What did you all come up with that um, in terms of what what that means? I see Renee giggling. Oh, towards the end, my mind just got blown again. So it's like, (laughs) because Mary mentioned something about, you know, when you have the the Eucharist and you're thinking about the, the, that that's all tied into the, when the God saved the Israelites. And they put blood on the doorposts. Well, so then when Jesus said, this is my blood. And it means he's putting blood on our doorposts. So death will pass us by. And that just, (laughs) I never connected that before. Yes. It's beautiful. It is. It is so cool. It's just <laughs> I, I was I was always, you know, from being in churches that I was in, it was always that Jesus's blood. The only thing it did was wash away our sins. You know, any sin that God has already forgiven, because we've learned that. And it was like, so what are what is Jesus actually saying? And it was like, oh my gosh, Mary just said that, and it just put connected in my brain. <laughs> and I know you said not to use outside sources, mm-hmm. but I it anyway, why am I not surprised? Well, it just comes on me with what Renee's saying is in our home on Thanksgiving, we have turkey, on Christmas, we have ham, and Easter, we have lamb. And it's always been because it's the lamb of God. But mm-hmm. 
take it back to Passover, the entire lamb must be eaten, not wasted. I'll tell you what, at $40 for a lamb, we don't waste that sucker. <laughs> we eat the whole thing. And it's, we only eat lamb once or twice a year, which is Easter. Mm -hmm. I, I might make a second one because it was so good the first time. And we go, okay. But it's not like you go out and you buy lamb all the time, right? That's not at your HEB. Right. Or your Publix if you won the lottery ticket. You know? <laughs> yeah. Florida. But it does go back to the Passover. Yeah. Yeah, connecting communion back to Passover is really important for understanding what it, it is, what it means, you know. Mm -hmm. And 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 so so what what does if we're having communion, if Jesus' body and blood, you know, if 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 this is what it represents, and it represents an ongoing Passover, and somehow that has yet to be finished, what does that mean? What does it mean to finish it? What, what does that mean for us? Ha, did you think, talk about, you know, are we the ones finishing it or is Jesus the one finishing it? Didn't get there. Well, let's think about that. <laughs> I don't, I don't believe you can separate it again, not, Either or, it's both and, it's Christ and Jesus and us. Um, I take it down to Maslow's bottom rung. Uh, it saddens me that we can't be at table together as a group because I've come to know you and love you. And I, it would be wonderful to be able to break bread. And that to me would be Eucharist. That I grew up with the tradition that Eucharist happened in church and you received it from the priest. I, it's bigger than that for me at this stage, which is any time I am, and I am you know, the right heart when I sit with someone, and even times when I'm not, when I may be having a disagreement, but I try to put my heart in the place to listen, and to understand, and to forgive. That, to me, is Eucharist. We have it. It's not ever finished, and, and and I don't ever want it to be finished. I, you know, when I'm gone, hopefully it lives on in my child and <laughs> the people that I touched. And I, I, it doesn't take the second coming for me to participate in the never-ending communion that is offered. That that's mm -hmm. just me. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful, Mary. Mm -hmm. I, I wish we were closer. I'd love to sit and break bread with you. Yes, I feel the same about each well, of you. You two are close. You can do it. You guys live in the same town. Do we really? Yes. Wow. <laughs> we need to work that out then. <laughs> I just wish it could be everybody. And, yeah. uh, That's true. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, so what other thoughts about, like, if we kind of go through the bullet points, um, the bullet points were, uh, the lamb we are eating, uh, and this is referring only to that first Passover, 
the subsequent Passovers, they didn't have to do all that, all that part, this first bullet point, but the first Passover, the, in Egypt, it had to be a perfect lamb that they had personally chosen and taken care of for three days. Well, we went to the resurrection. (laughs) What did you say? We were discussing how Christ is our perfect lamb that had been chosen and cared for three days, and then he rise, would rise again, mm-hmm. which brought us to a very interesting question for Gail. Okay, after he ri- rose from the dead and he appeared to the disciples and they were eating and Thomas questioned him and he put his hand in the scar did jesus eat yes he, he did, did it on eat. purpose so they so would he, think he was a ghost after he rose he did he ate fish oh well that's interesting yeah yeah we're going to talk about but that passover. no there was no passover again so because he just rose he was only there just a little bit he, and then he then he um, went back to heaven. We were talking about when he would eat the Passover again with them. And I said, maybe it wouldn't be until after he came back for the second coming. Right. Oh, well, that's an interesting point, right? Hmm? Maybe it's when he comes back that he eats. Passover and the kingdom of God has come to the whole world. Well, that's interesting. Any well, that whole coming back is very cloudy for me. And I'm not sure we're going to be sitting around eating together. I'm not oh. sure. It seems like there's going to be horses running amok and all kinds <laughs> that's of different. Things. You know, that's that's a completely different thing, but there is definitely a lot of eating and drinking and partying happening in the kingdom of God. Absolutely. And in fact, the the question that came up in my mind was, is where we have the Passover after the pass when the Passover is fully completed is what comes next, the wedding feast, you know? the the our wedding feast with with god with jesus with you know with community um and uh it's just we don't know so this is just things to press on and think about and let help make connections in in our minds but i particularly loved the fact that what we what is being sacrificed here this paschal lamb is something precious to us. Renee has just nursed a precious little kitty through heart failure. Teeny mm-hmm. little kitten. And you get attached, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, she was just telling me before class that it was going to be a foster fail. <laughs> because they're going to keep this kitty. <laughs> it's not going nowhere. <laughs> um. There is something precious about our bodies. It, even though it's not about our bodies, 
There is something precious about our bodies and our and caring for each other and caring for them. So then the next bullet point was the entire lamb has to be eaten and not wasted, which Julia um, uh, spoke to. And that, that brings, that brought to mind the verse that says, taste and see that the Lord is good. You taste like honey in the rock. It's like, just open your mouth and taste the Lord. That's amazing. Also, I wonder if every, I mean, surely at the time of the, the, the original Passover, there must have been families that weren't large enough to eat a whole lamb. Yes, and they had. So I wonder if they could. They would have to get together and share it. Yep. To eat it all. They did. Then God specifically said that. You're thinking like God, Renee. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I, I, I kind of love the idea that Jesus will not eat Passover again until everybody has been rescued from slavery. And I think we have a, a role in that. Go ahead, Mary. I'm sorry. I I think about the um, viewpoint from um, Course in Miracles. I, I think I mentioned to you all that my husband and I did that for many years. And um took exception with some of it, embraced some of it. It's, you know, as we do with the gospel and the Bible, it causes us to think and dig deeper. But in in their belief through this particular writing, it's the, the second coming is when we all see the Christ in the other. That's what the second coming in. And that is when we recognize the Christ in everyone that we encounter and are present to, then that's the second coming. But we have work to do. Mm -hmm. Jesus kept telling them, you know, if you knew God, you would recognize me. And if we knew God, if we know Jesus, we would recognize each other. Yes. Beautiful. Right? Right? What are some other... um, So the next bullet point is... Yeah, they had to eat it standing up. They couldn't even sit down to eat this lamb. And they had to do it dressed in their traveling clothes, ready to leave. I I brought up a point, and, and it could be off base, but doesn't that speak to the situation that the disciples are going to find themselves in after Christ is persecuted and dies and resurrects and then they're going to go out and spread the word but aren't they going to have a price on their head yeah and they're not going to have homes they're going to be traveling right yeah i mean if they have homes they're not going to be in them very long some of these some of the apostles were married but um it yeah absolutely and doesn't that speak to what 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 we should be prepared to do it kind of it kind of talks to me about not clinging to our possessions and our money and our stake in the ground and our property oh don't say that i'm in my craft room i know that (laughs) (laughs) 
you're working on it. You're working on holding some of that stuff loosely, right? And <laughs> I am working on it. Some of it's got to go. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that as Christians, we are called to be ready to travel. Ready oh, that's so hard for me. Ready to go. Yep. Yep. I don't think we all do it in the same way, but I, it, it seems to be important. Um, and that it was so important that that particular point of needing to be ready to leave everything and in, in a moment had to be celebrated, not just one festival day, but for a whole week, they could not have yeast in the house and eat unleavened bread. That was about time frame. That was about being ready at a moment's notice. And that is what Jesus chose as representative of his body in the Eucharist. Being ready to give it up at a moment's notice. I don't know that we think that when we take communion. We might now. You know, Jesus said, I want you to remember me like this. This is how I want you to remember me. So um, then this part uh, the next bullet was do this every year to remember what God has done for you and make this the first month of every year. This is the beginning of your year, by the way. <laughs> this is your new year celebration. You know, um, make it, make it this month. I was intrigued to hear from some of you all uh, and a challenge for me, Gail, that I shared in the group was your prompt and your invitation to not go into what we know, what, you know, to, to let leave that behind, if you will, put that down. Um, was difficult because this is all built around a sacrament in my church. Yeah, it's fraught. It's, it's layered. It's really hard to just put it aside. But that particular passage um, is something I do love, which is we celebrate Eucharist in my tradition every day. You know, you can go and have communion every day if you choose. Um, And I was very interested to hear from the group. That's what I love about being with you all. We don't all see and, and... have grown up the same way and I'm I was that's so worthy of me being enlightened to know how other people view that you know I am very open to hearing how how we in our traditions do Eucharist think about Eucharist and communion and I um, what do y'all think what has been your experience? Well, I'll tell on myself. This is not a flattering story. When I was young, I was I went to Catholic school and I was in the sacristy club. And we used to set out the wine and the Eucharist 
for the priests. But we would snack on them. But mm -hmm. they were not blessed. They were just crackers. Because they weren't blessed. They hadn't transfigured into the body and blood of Christ. So, it, there was the, the preparedness. And then there was after the blessing and the transformation. And those were two different things. And they hit me differently. Mm -hmm. We also played in the confessional, too. I'm sorry. <laughs> we were young. I love it. <laughs> what about the rest of you? What has your been, experience been with communion? Usually just once a month. You see it? Okay. Some churches Our church that we went to in Colorado, we had it once a quarter. Yep, same. You know what? Here was one that my husband asked a, a family member um, about during COVID because we did communion at home. Well, we did drive-through communion that was blessed by our pastor. And that was one thing. But then at home, we also did, I would prepare a small amount of, juice or something and we would have a cracker or a piece of bread or whatnot and my husband was like how close this is so silly how close do you got to be to the tv for that to take and happen because it was a zoom <laughs> i'm thinking it it's not that it's it's the ceremony together the communion with your pastor and your belief in this change. Because for me, it is a change. I grew up with that thought process. Mm -hmm. It mm -hmm. is literally the body and blood of Christ. Mm -hmm. It's not symbolically the body and blood of Christ. Mm -hmm. And also another story that that comes to mind is my late mother-in-law when she came to our church you know how you dip the bread in the cup and you take the the juice or the 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 communion that way she grabbed that cup from the usher and she took her gulp and there was a little tussle going on over the cup but that was the way she took communion and she was going to take communion as she takes communion to heck with how everybody else was dunking. <laughs> and I just loved her for that. It was totally humiliating at the same time and wonderful in the same moment because it was her faith, her communion, her beliefs. And I grew up taking from a communal cup, you know? And it was brandy that the monks made it at the um, Benedictine Monastery, you know? Interesting. Shirley, did you have something? Yeah, I was just, you know, growing up Baptist, it was totally opposite situation from what, you know, we're hearing from so far in that it was symbolic, you know, didn't, we didn't believe that it changes into literal 
blood and body. Um, and, but it was a holy time where we were supposed to stop and think about our lives and confess any unconfessed sins. And, you know, it was, it was a somber, solemn time. It wasn't a time of, you know, we, the kids weren't supposed to be carrying on and having fun or anything like that. And also in most of the churches that I grew up in, you weren't allowed to take communion until you were like 13 or something. Um, or the, until you had at least made a profession of faith and come forward in the church or whatever. And so my kids, some of them came forward in the church earlier, some later, you know, but you couldn't take communion until you had made that profession of faith. Now, whether that's biblical or not, I don't know. What I do know is in the Episcopal, or not Episcopal, in the Methodist church that I'm in now, you know, it's a totally different situation than what I had growing up. And I've learned a lot from them. But the one story that I was thinking about, and what, this is why I said Episcopal, my father-in-law, or my ex-husband's family was Episcopal. My father-in-law didn't really go to church. But when he died, um, they wanted the family to have communion um, at, you know, before the funeral. We were going to meet in the pastor's office and the family have communion and then go on in. And I, as a Baptist and fundamentalist, which I'm recovering from, um, as that, I was concerned about taking communion in a, in a church that believed differently than my church taught. And I asked my pastor, you know, am I doing something wrong if I take communion because I don't want to offend the family and not take communion and, you know, with the whole the whole situation. And there were people in that group that were taking communion that I knew weren't living a life for Christ. And I was like, you know, I feel like I'm taking communion with heathens. And, you know, <laughs> and the pastor said, Shirley what's the most important thing in this whole thing? You're there to honor your father-in-law and to honor the Lord. What would honor the Lord? I said, taking communion with my family. And he goes, exactly. And so I had communion with them. Well, since then, I've learned so many other things and my heart and mind have changed so much from the person I was then that I realized for all of us, no matter what we believe, no matter how we were brought up, Eucharist, communion, Lord's Supper, whatever you call it in your church, or even if you don't go to church, whatever you refer to it as, all of it is for one purpose, and that's to remember what Christ did for us. And it's not to save us, and it's not to, you know, it's, it doesn't matter that we believe different things. What matters is who we're honoring and we're honoring the Lord when we take communion. So to me, it's just a holy time. And, and it says uh, whenever you eat or drink. And so, you know, we weren't given a specific, you have to do this every day or you have to do this once a week or you have to do this once a month. And I've been in some churches that only did it twice a year like you know maybe they did it on easter and christmas or something like that which i like it better in where i'm at now we do it at least once a month if i could have communion every every week i would but we don't do that in the methodist church but i think it's just a holy time 
to sit and think about what God has done for you and what, if anything, you need to get right yourself. And as long as you're doing that, I, I don't think there's, I think the rest of it is window dressing. Doesn't it feel a lot like a, a ceremony of participation? It's like intentional participation with the Lord and each other, you know, mm -hmm. which I think as you kind of touched on, um, Shirley, it, that with each other gets twisted out of twisted a little like, well, but they have to be up to snuff or else, you know, they're cavorting with demons or something. I was like, um, no, <laughs> uh, you know, Jesus dipped the bread with Judas. With mm -hmm. Judas, yes. Mm -hmm. So, and it's not our business what's going on in somebody else's heart. Right. Our business is what's going on in our heart. That's right. And, and I love when we call it communion because of the fact that that's what we are doing. We are communing with God and we are communing with each other. That's so right. I love I love calling it that. And it's a it's a remembering, you know, if we can keep it linked with the Passover in our minds, it is a remembering of God, the whole idea is God delivering us from slavery. Jesus is a big part of that. Jesus is I'm going to go return to my seat here. now. Yeah, bless you. You know, but that's not the whole story. There was all this backstory that goes with it. Um, and uh, one of the things uh, that you all have touched on several times is the idea of the, you know, that when the priest blesses it, the, that the, the bread and the wine, um, actually change it physically into body and blood. That's called transubstantiation is the fancy word for that. And, um, that point seems to me to be beside the point. I mean, I just can't imagine anything <laughs> that has less to do with, is it, Passover? Is it remembering Jesus? Is it in community with other people? Is it inspiring us to remember to hold ourselves ready to move at a moment's notice with the Holy Spirit? Is it, you know, is it something that that is reminding us of Jesus, you know, being surrounding us, our doorposts, you know, um, it's is and, and and delivering us from death that just whether or not it changes, it transubstantiates and changes into physical body and blood, I don't care, actually, you know? And that point, guys, that point split Christianity mm -hmm. into huge different streams. That was the big split between Catholics and Protestants. You know, it just unbelievable to me that we fought over that stuff. And then, you know, once the Protestants split off, they're still fighting over it and splitting off and splitting off and splitting off, you know. I wanted to address something Julia said, and that is we are all priests, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. We are Jesus all priests. Said, That's don't what... call anybody rabbi or teacher. But um, we have all inherited from him that kingly priesthood mm -hmm. so when it comes to giving communion 
I feel like you don't have to be, now this is just me, but I did communion with my kids, with my mom, because she kept asking for somebody, our pastor to come out and do communion with her. And he refused, long story, I won't tell why. But anyway, um, she couldn't get a pastor to come do communion with her. So when my kids and I were on vacation in 2006, and she passed away in 2007, her last communion she ever did was with my kids and I. And let me tell you, that was a holy moment. Yes. But I had to bless those sacraments myself because we had Welch's grape juice and we had premium saltine crackers and that's what we used. Yes. And we didn't have a priest that could bless them. But I believe that we honored God by granting my mother's wish. Do you think Jesus wouldn't be there with bells on, you know, at, at the bedside? Of course he would. And and I, I I think we should we're thinking about it backwards rather than thinking about it in an exclusionary manner like this. We need to go back to Jesus words where he said, every time you eat and drink, mm-hmm. you are having communion. Yep. Every time. Remember me every time. The whole point of doing this is to remember me. You eat you know, hopefully three times a day. Remember me when you do it. And so the the very last point here is um, from now on, God said, back in Egypt, from now on, the firstborn belongs to God. Because, of course, the 10th plague was when the firstborn of the Egyptians and the cattle and everybody died so that Pharaoh would finally let go and let the people go. Um, God said the firstborn belongs to God animals you need for work, like, you know, your donkeys, your oxen, things like that. And your own sons, you do not have to sacrifice. You may quote, the word is redeem them by giving God a lamb instead. Now, I just as, as barbaric as the whole idea of Passover might sound with the killing of the firstborn, you know, whatever that may say to you and however you may feel about that. This point that God made with people was that God never requires human sacrifice. God, and that includes Jesus. Jesus laid his life down by living it to the end, living it to the end. Um, And that is our pattern. Um, But the Passover marks this as well. The, The Passover marks the point in time where the firstborn belonged to God. That that's kind of interesting to ponder because yeah, what about us middle kids and the younger kids and what about the rest of us, you know? But um, we will see later. Now I'm going to break my own rule on this page. We're going to see later (laughs) Paul talking about Jesus being the first of many. 
He is the first of which we are part of. Does that make sense? We are part of his being the firstborn. And communion brings us into that. I mean, anything could bring us into that. We are in that, but it is a ceremony. That communion is not something magical that we're supposed to do in order to become something else. Mm -hmm. Communion is to remind us of what we already are. Mm -hmm. That's what all of the Jewish festivals were for. So that was, was what God set all this stuff up for, to remind us of what we already are and what our relationship with God is. All right. Um, that's all about all I've got. Y'all have some other ideas? This wow. was heavy. This it, was a lot of a lot of stuff that could have gone on longer. Um, yeah, it, I had it, more thoughts too, but um, you know, it's good. just deep. And and when we're talking about something that is so ingrained and that we've got so much baggage around, oh yeah, just taking away one or two new points, new points of view, is enough. This is not something you need to feel settled about coming out of this class. It's enough to just have a new hill to look at it from. I told the story, I think, sometime back, and I'll repeat it and bear with me. But my husband was a college professor at Catholic College and a Benedictine college in uh, Atchison, Kansas. And he had a student that was getting ready for graduation and had to take tests and came up to him and said, Professor Myrick, I really need to ask you a question. I need you to be honest with me. And Gary said, okay. And, you know, he said, do I have to believe, it's a Catholic college, do I have to believe that at communion it is actually (laughs) transformed into the blood and body and um, he said, because I don't believe it, but I want to get out of this college. <laughs> and I remember just laughing about that. And I'm thinking that that is religion versus spirituality. That, as you said, Gail, we are already there. We are all there. But religion, boy, just tap dances on those things. <laughs> And this is a big one. He wanted out of college. He was done. He would believe whatever it took to get out of college, right? Yeah. You know? yeah, I, I, I understand. Um, I want to remind you all that we have no class next week. I am out of town next week. Uh, okay. Uh, so we're all off. Have a happy August break. And we will see you the week after that. Safe travels. Thank you. Love you. Bye. 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 Bye.